This evening, given that in the past two or three weeks we've had a number of visiting monks from the Buddhist monasteries of Europe and Asia, um, particularly uh, Ajahn Jamnian, who spoke here last Monday night and was here through much of the week, I'd like to talk about that, about Ajahn Jamnian particularly, and also about eccentricity. <laughs> Tell a few stories, and maybe it's a way of my own digesting of what happened in this visit. It's kind of remarkable because I would come over here um, to translate and so forth in the course of this last couple of weeks with Ajahn Sumedho and then Ajahn Jamni in here. And I'd listen as I do to um, National Public Radio and I'd hear what's happening in Bosnia and what's going on in Washington, what's going on in different, in the world falling apart in, you know, new and unusual, not very unusual fashions, but repeated fashions. And, that kind of world that you hear on the news. And then I'd arrive here, um, and there would be Ajahn Sumedho or Ajahn Jamnian right from the forests of the Tiger's Cave Monastery of Southern Thailand. And the place was this totally other reality, like this Asian temple with visitors and ceremonies and shared meals and Dharma conversations and a whole community. It was like a different kind of a world, a Dharma world or a village. Um, and part of what made it beautiful was the quality of time that we lived in, those of us who spent much time over <clears throat> the past weeks with Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Jamnian and so forth. There was much more of the quality of the timeless, of living in the reality of the present. There wasn't some fixed schedule, well, now it's time to sit or walk or you know, now it's time to, you, you have your next appointment and so forth. Um, and in fact, both for Ajahn Jamnian and for Ajahn Sumedho, um, there is a, a, a practice that they keep, unlike myself, of never preparing notes for any kind of teaching, but just sitting down and letting themselves be empty and letting whatever is so, whatever is true in that time, um, be spoken. One of the qualities of Ajahn Sumedho, the abbot from England who spoke here on Monday a couple of weeks ago, um, that makes his presence so strong is his own dedica dedication to the simplicity of his life, to the truth of this moment. And it makes him, um, because he runs the largest community of monks and of Western monks and nuns, um, anywhere in the world. Um, it makes him very attractive to people because he's so down-to-earth. And in a way he has a lot of humility, even though he's been honored as an abbot and all kinds of things. He's not particularly puffed up or, you know, pretending to be this great wise being. He says, I'm just trying to live the Dharma rather than, you know, be something or someone. Um, and having known him for 30 years, uh, that quality has always been a part of his way of practice. He's always expressed it. Some teaching that he gave when he first opened his monastery in England, uh, probably more than 15 years ago, 18 years ago. And he had all kinds of people coming and wanting to learn these 
uh, esoteric Buddhist practices and great forms of samadhi and this and that. Um, and yet when they would sit down, they would, their struggle would be just to be themselves. He said, you're trying to be somebody else through your practice. How about being yourself first? Um, he said, so the practice that he most frequently recommended was the practice of letting go. Rather than becoming something, the practice of letting go of becoming something. The practice of letting go is a very effective method, especially for those of you with minds obsessed by compulsive thinking, plans, trying to be something or other. You simplify your meditation and your spiritual life down to just two words, letting go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this aspect of the Dharma and read the sutras and study Buddhist psychology and learn Sanskrit and Pali and Abhidharma and the Madhyamaka and Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in the Hinayana and the Mahayana and the Vajrayana and write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. This was the practice I did for years in the monastery. Every time I tried to understand and figure things out, I'd say let go and let go until whatever that desire or plan was would fade away. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. You know? Some of you might have the desire to become the great Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating loving-kindness throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just becoming an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love and be the most special being on the planet. Just be the earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go, let go. You see, ours is the lesser vehicle. We have only these simple poverty-stricken practices. And like Ajahn Subedo, Ajahn Jamnian also, um, though rich with all kinds of teachings, brought to us um, that same kind of open-mindedness um, and ease in the present moment. He had a tremendous interest in the world and in life and was learning, kind of like the Dalai Lama, who always wants to know who you are and learn about the world, this wonderful kind of innocence. Um, and Ajahn Jamnian said over and over, he said, I'm still a student. He said, I've had so many wonderful teachers, and now you all are my teachers. Um, he said, maybe without you coming, I just kind of laze and lie about and not do anything. It's hard to picture him, actually, but he had so much energy. But he said it, maybe I'd just be lazing about. But then you come, and you ask all these Dharma questions, and you inspire me to talk about the Dharma. The sail, a sailboat depends on the wind. A merchant depends on the customers. And a teacher depends on the students. It's really this dynamic back and forth. Um, and there is this beautiful sense of grace that comes, not from the teacher to the students, but in this connection that we come together in. It really comes from everyone's energy and heart. I remember talking with Ramdas in the first years of my own teaching at Naropa Institute about 20 years ago. And 
he was in this conversation saying that there were periods where he felt like, you know, there'd be 2,000 people in this hall waiting for him. And he, he said, and I have nothing to say. You know, and I don't know why are they looking at me, right? And of course, he's so confessional anyway, right? It's sort of his nature. I have nothing to, nothing to teach. What, what do I have to say? He said, so I just get there and I look at the people and maybe I have them ask me a few questions. And he says, the, sincere, the, the sincerity of their questions, he said, people would look at me with such longing and such sincerity to know the truth or to know what it means to love one another or to awaken, that no matter where I was, even if I was really out you know, to lunch or whatever, no matter where I was, the sincerity of the question would bring out of me, draw out a beautiful answer. So there's this grace, really, that goes two ways um, when we meet anyone in a place of truth that we share. One of the most obvious qualities of Ajahn Jamnian, you know, of his life as a forest meditation teacher and master, was his amazing and wonderful eccentricity. I mean, he's one of the most eccentric people you'd ever meet. He is sort of all his comic gestures of wiggling one ear and raising one eyebrow and, you know, doing weird things with the kids when they would come in, you know, or wearing 500 sacred objects as a practice like some... I've never seen that. You know, he made it up, right? This is from, uh, from the Italian filmmaker uh, Federico Fellini. He says, what I care about most is the freedom of a human being, the liberation of the individual from the network of moral and social convention in which they believe, or rather which they think they believe, and which encrusts them and limits them and makes them narrow and small, sometimes even worse than they might really be. In fact, often. Or the painter George Brock, who said it beautifully, he said, it's up to us to be real strong eccentrics and not to waver. <laughs> I love it. So here is, uh, here is Ajahn Jamnian, clearly one of the more eccentric people that you would meet. But what does it mean to be a true eccentric? Part of what it means is to drop our fears the fears, um, not to live our life afraid of what people will think. Thank God, you know. Not to live your life afraid of what people will think. Um, I'm, uh, this is a hard practice for me, you know. I, I learned to be a good boy and to please people and stuff like that. You know, oh, I've had my bad moments, it's true, <laughs> which I think back to quite fondly, as a matter of fact. <laughs> But it's hard um, with the kind of temperament. I was sort of the peacemaker in my family. My parents would fight and battle, and it was pretty violent or abusive at times. Um, and I was trying to make things quiet. I'm still trying to do that, as you can see, peaceful, right? <laughs> Smile, my job. Um, but to really drop one's fears um, about praise and blame, because you know what? They're going to blame you anyway, right? And they're going to praise you anyway. And there's nothing you can do that stops that. No matter what you do, somebody's going to say, yeah, they like it. And somebody's going to say, nah, it's terrible. They're an idiot. 
So to be eccentric is to step out of the life that's lived on the fear of what other people will think. But to be eccentric doesn't mean then you just follow all your desires and your fears and kind of whatever comes up, you just do it. In staying true to yourself, the kind of eccentricity I mean is to express your own freedom of heart in all circumstances. This true freedom is not one of grasping and resisting and being frightened or exploiting or harming others. That's not real freedom. Here I'll read you what the ancient Taoists, Lao Tzu, Zhuang Tzu, speak of this, this um, authentic being that we all can find. The men and women in whom Tao acts without impediment harm no other beings by their actions, yet they do not know themselves to be kind or to be gentle. The men and women in whom the Tao acts do not bother with their own interests and do not despise others who do. They do not struggle to make money and they do not make a virtue of poverty. They go their way without relying on others and do not pride themselves on walking alone. While they won't follow the crowd, they don't complain of those who do. Rank and reward make no appeal to them. Disgrace and shame do not deter them. They're not always looking for what is right and wrong in someone's eyes, always deciding yes or no. They are empty. No self is true self. And the greatest person realizes they are no one. That's from the Taoists. So it's not that you try to make yourself this spiritual person or you're going to be you're going to live simply more simply than everybody else that's just another kind of the golden chain it's another kind of spiritual cage for yourself now in america when we think of eccentricity we often associate it with anarchy no rules you know do anything you want and it's interesting in the spiritual business that I'm in, there's been all these kind of problems with uh, the conduct of various teachers that have been written up in different ways, their misuse of power or their role or sexuality or money. And there comes a great polarization about that because um, there are some people who speak out and say, you know, this is not, the, uh, this is not an expression of enlightenment, of wisdom. And then others who react against those who speak out and say, you know, you're just Puritans. You're just the new um, McCarthyists trying to set rules for everybody and a teacher should be free to do whatever they like. You're just, you know, recreating the, the Catholic Church or whatever it is and saying this is sinful and this is good and bad and that's not what Buddhism is. Buddhism means you can really be free to do anything you want. And so there are these two kind of polarities there's the side that people say is making rules and, you know, rigidity and seeing what's sinful and so forth. That's what they're afraid of. Um, and then the other side, which is nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm really free. And that's the kind of freedom as license to do anything you like. And in this country, we don't understand eccentricity so well. It actually scares most Americans, and we tend to be more like sheep, I'm sorry to say, especially if you go to more eccentric cultures. 
meditation or the kind of attention that one cultivates in this practice is an invitation to be with what is true in the moment and not all the conditioning of how we're supposed to be. And this true freedom is to be where we are with compassion, to be where you are with great compassion. This is a freedom of the heart that we can discover, free from the entanglements of fear and grasping and anger and compulsion. You see all those things. To follow those is not your true self, is not the (coughs) freedom that this eccentricity maybe points to. But to release that and to listen deeply inside What do I most deeply love? What do I most deeply value? What is the voice that most could come through me, my gift to the the earth, to this community, to this moment? The words of the Buddha in the Dhammapada, he says, you too shall pass away, and very soon. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? How can you get caught up in things? This is a kind of wise spirit that recognizes there will always be praise and blame. The people will always think something, you know. I mean, you're all sitting there thinking something as I'm sitting here talking. I know you are. Uh, It's okay tonight. I've heard him be better. (laughs) B minus, right, or whatever. There's always going to be that, and people are always going, oh, I like that, that was, you know, and sometimes I'll give this talk and I'll feel like, well, I wasn't really very good tonight, they won't like me, you know, I feel bad, like, well, I'm supposed to be entertaining and awakening and enlivening and all this, and it was, I was an off night, and then somebody will come and say, you know, that talk, you said this thing and it changed my life, and I look at them and I say, what did I say? <laughs> Or I think I did this wonderful thing and then I see people all walking out in the bathroom. (laughs) You don't know. There's always going to be praise and blame. What does it mean to be free from that and free from our grasping of what we're going to get and our compulsion, free from anything that might cause us to harm others because we're in conflict from the world? Now Ajahn Janmian talked about this a lot. He said he'd been criticized because he is so eccentric and he teaches in very, you know, unusual ways. He said, I've had people throughout my years in my, not just people come and visit, but those who live with me in my monastery, hundreds who've criticized me, you know. He said, they've also tried to kill me many times because he was involved in the peace work in the, in the war in the mountains of southern Thailand for, for 10 or 15 years. Tried to kill him countless times. He said, but I take their criticism as a gift. He says, it helps me to see clearly what people say to me, even if they really insult me. Because if they insult me, then in that moment I get to see, am I free or am I not? It's just that simple. You know, and if not, then here's another place to let go. As the Buddha said, examine those who criticize or insult you or judge you as if they were offering you a gift. And if it's true, take it and use it. Say, well, this is something I have to understand. And if it's false, put it down. It's that simple. To rest your heart of dharma, 
to rest your heart in the Dharma, that is in the Tao, in the truth, means to see things clearly, to see what is so, and say, yes, this is so. This is how it is. Not good and not bad in the sense of, oh, I wish it were some other way. <coughs> to see the world for what it is, and until we see things as they are, we can't respond, we can't be of assistance until we recognize that the United States is the major weapon supplier on the face of the earth, you know, or that we are still in danger of having nuclear material shipped all around the world and bombs get in the hands of all kinds of people, nuclear bombs. You don't close your eyes until you say, yes, this is so. And face it, there's no possibility of a wise response, of doing something out of compassion. To see clearly what is so. Now I'll tell you a story that I'm a little bit reluctant to tell because I don't want it to be misunderstood. You'll, you'll sense why when I come to the end of it. And it's about another one of the great eccentric teachers that some of you may know as well as I do, who is Ruth Dennison, a Vipassana teacher who sometimes teaches at Spirit Rock. She's in her 70s, you know, and she dresses in these kind of old-fashioned dresses and little old Mother Hubbard-type bonnets and is te teaches in all kinds of eccentric ways. Um, anyway, one of her Dharma successors, a student um, and now a teacher up in Oregon, invited her to come up to give a lecture and do some teaching in Portland. Ruth was having difficulty at that time, she still is now, because her husband of many, many decades, she's been married to for such a long time, who's in his mid-80s, um, has Alzheimer's, and he's getting worse, and he, you know, burned down one part of the house, and he leaves food in some cabinet, and you open it three weeks later, and it's full of maggots and rotted, and no one's seen it, and he yells at people, and he can't remember things as that, the, the pain of that loss of one's mind. Very, very difficult. And because she lives at her center in the desert, he gets in trouble and she has to drive halfway through the night into L.A. and help him and then come back. And she's been taking care of him and it's been very, very difficult while teaching her meditation. So she flew up to Oregon and she came into this room of a hundred or two hundred people, whatever it was, to teach. And she's not one who gives formal Dharma talks. More she says, well, here we are, stand up, feel your body, move. Let's pay attention to the sensations of being alive. Let's come back to this moment rather than this formal kind of teaching. She really works with the energy of the moment. So she said, oh, they want to talk. All right, I'll do what I can. And she sat down and she said, well, I might as well tell you what's been happening. And she told the story of Henry, her husband, and his Alzheimer's and the fire and how part of the house had burned and all this stuff. People listened and she began to teach a little more Dharma. And then she said, oh, have I told you about the fire? And she forgot and she told the story all over again. Henry and the fire, and all these things that happened and how difficult it was. And she finished and then she started to talk about some other dharma or whatever. And then she said, oh, I have to tell you about the fire that happened. <laughs> and the person who invited her, his heart started to sink. Oh dear, she's losing it, right? You know, and he loves her and other people, wow. And she started to launch in the whole story again for the third time in a row. Some people started to get up and go out like, okay, 
this isn't what I came for, right? And so forth. And she went on and she told that and talked about it a little more. And then she said, have I told you about the fire? And started for the fourth time to tell the story. I got to tell you this, you know. And a whole bunch of people got up to walk out. And they were partway out the room and she said, wait a second, she said. She said, before you go out of this room, I want you to look at your expectations. What did you come here expecting somebody was going to do? What did you come expecting to see? Can you, can you see your expectations? You come to see the truth, don't you? And then she went on. She said, you should sit back down because tonight you have a chance to see something very rare. She said, tonight you have a chance to see an elder Dharma teacher fail because I don't know what I'm saying and I can't remember what I've said to you. Pretty amazing, isn't it? She has this place of awakening. I've seen it many times of enlightenment that no matter how difficult things become, all of a sudden this vision will come out of her and she'll say, that's the way it is, isn't it? And you go, wow, she really was there. Now the end of the story, and this is why it's important to be careful in telling it, is that she's fine. She's not losing it at all. In fact, she's as eccentric as always, but also she's quite fine. She, um, it was situational. She had been up three nights in a row without sleeping, been driving, taking care of Henry, doing all this, and she just couldn't remember. Um, she got a good night's sleep, and the next day, all that loss of memory came back. And I've been with her a number of times since then, and she's been quite fine. But what an amazing thing to say in the middle of this, Wait a second, you have the chance to see something rare, to see an elder, elder Dharma teacher fail. That's a kind of courage, to just be where you are and tell the truth. It's the kind of courage, I think it was Kierkegaard who, uh, who spoke about, described the courage not to call a thing good a moment longer than it really is. the courage not to fight with circumstances. So that the translator, when Ajahn Jamnian was here, the translator um, from Hawaii, Michael, who was an acupuncturist and Chinese healer who's been living in Hawaii, was talking about the resurgence of the native healing tradition in Hawaii, of their herbalists and doctors. And he talked about a practice, if I remember the name right, and I wish I could, I'm not certain, I thought it was called Honopuapua. Does anybody know the Hawaiian medic, the practice? Well, I'll explain it. And if anyone knows the, um, the, if this isn't the right name, I want to get it right. Um, but people will go to an ancient Hawaiian doctor, herbalist, or healer for a cure, and the, the physician will say, we need first to do the Honopuapua which means that you gather together all your relations and your neighbors and community members, especially anyone that you do not feel in harmony with, to sit in a circle with you and the doctor. And then before the doctor diagnoses you and gives you the herbs and the remedies, you have to sit in the circle with all of these people and tell them one by one 
what is out of harmony. And only then does the doctor prescribe the medicine. Then, if necessary, there's an herbal cure. As you can imagine, it uses a lot less medicine, right? Because you tell the truth. Remember that early film, I don't know which one it was, of Woody Allen, the Valium scene, where the star in the film is shopping in Bloomingdale's, you know, and, the, and she searches in her purse and realizes her Valium is lost? and tells the sales clerk, what are you looking for? She said, I've lost my Valium. And he gets up and he yells out, help, there's an emergency. This woman has lost her Valium. Can anyone help her? And all of a sudden, a hundred hands go into their purses, you know, to pull out their Valium throughout the store. Mm. The courage to be with things as they are, to say what is so, the healing of calling the circle, and speaking what is out of harmony to your community members, your relations, who you're not in harmony with. Imagine that as a healing practice. You can as a healing practice. It's the healing that happens in a village. So instead of struggling with the changing circumstances of life, we begin to see them for what they are and use them for awakening. This is the teachings of Tantra, to take poison and turn it into the medicine of the heart. So Ajahn Jamnian gave a lot of examples when he was teaching about working with the community in his own monastery, the monks and nuns. He said, you live with hundreds of monks and nuns. He said, you can't imagine, if you've never done it, there's plenty of conflict and gossip and jealousy and all the kinds of things that comes with community. How could there not be, right? And he says, but I don't get in conflict with them. He said, I just use that. So we said, well, how do you, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I see what they have to say or listen to them. And then rather than saying, you know, what's wrong, I listen as a way that they can learn about themselves. So, for example, he said, if somebody comes in and, you know, has a big ego and says, you know, I'm great and I, this is a pretty good temple, but I could build a better one or something. Instead of saying, you know, you've got a big ego, he says, I look at them and I say, oh, you can build a big, t- bigger temple than this? Great, we need a new temple over there. Go to it, I'll help you. And I say, look at them and say, you build it for us. And then he said, either they succeed, which means they were right and we get a new temple, right? Or they fail, they can't do it. And then they come and they say, you know, I wasn't quite the builder I thought I was. And he said, and I didn't have to say a word. They learn from it. You know, or somebody came and ordained as a monk who was a, uh, who, who had uh, been a, a fighter and a boxer and whatever, uh, and still had that energy in the monastery. He said, so... I made him my bodyguard. He said, there were all these threats on my life. I said, well, this is his energy. Let's use it for something. I didn't fight against him. You know, or this person who was very critical and was always criticizing. He said, oh, I put him in charge of the reports that were made you know, to the monastic community after them to describe what was going on in the monastery. And then I let the other people teach him about how he was uh, working with his mind. He said, I didn't have to do anything at all. You know? Or this drunkard monk who, he said, was a really beautiful heart, beautiful spirit, but periodically he would go out and get drunk and play billiards and gamble. And the people kept saying, you've got to throw him out of the monastery. It's no good. You can't have a monk like that. He said, but I saw such beauty in him. 
So finally, what to do? I gathered together five of his closest friends, and I brought him there in the middle, and I said, you know, everybody wants me to kick you out of the monastery because you go out and you drink and gamble and so forth. He said, but I told them I wouldn't do it because I see something good and beautiful in you. But I can't, um, I can't, you know, tell you what to do. All these people want you to kick out. I want to keep you here. So what I'm going to do is put you and your life in the hands of your five closest friends um, to care for you. He said, I won't be in charge of you. These are your friends, and let them help you. And he said, beside which they know what the guy is doing. He said, I might be traveling, you know, and I don't want to be calling back to the monastery. Did he go out? Is he drunk tonight or something? I said, I gave him to the people who really knew what he's doing, beside which he'd be ashamed because they took that responsibility. And so instead of turning it into something difficult, he turned it into a circumstance where everybody got some benefit. He said, you know, I don't like to have a big entourage when I travel. Usually I travel alone. If I go overseas, I'll take one or two monks with me because that's proper for a renunciate. But I don't like a big court because then you get favorites and jealousies and who's close to the teacher and all those kinds of things. He said, I like to just be there and meet people as they come without having favorites and try to see what's beautiful in each person, to see their Buddha nature and respond to it and nourish the seeds of goodness. Resting in the present, not a lot of plans. There's a way in which the visit of Ajahn Jamnian was like tending the garden of the Dharma at Spirit Rock or of American Dharma. Outwardly, he did all kinds of things. He did blessings for those who had lost loved ones or were grieving. He did ceremonies and gave out amulets and did healings for those who were sick and gave energy practices. He's the most energetic person I ever met. Two hours a night, gets up in the morning. Wow, what a great day to teach, you know. Let me at him, right? <laughs> Told stories for the kids, gave candings to everyone, did his shamanic practices, talked about exorcisms, endless ghost stories, shaggy ghost stories, you know. <laughs> Being in the ICU in the Chiang Mai hospital and all these things that were going wrong because uh, all these people had died there and no one had honored the spirits of those who had died. So they were making all this mischief and they called him in and he had a little powwow with the ghosts there, you know, and asked them what they wanted and said, you know, we need your help. They're trying to save lives in here. And he said, you know, the ghosts want to do the right thing if somebody will just honor that they're around, do a little ceremony for them, right? So he was doing all these things kind of outwardly telling the war stories in the, as a peacemaker that in his area. And then he would invite and cajole and remind and delight and tease people into looking inwardly at their own hearts and did a forgiveness practice for people and loving kindness and compassion practices and taught people to really look at the nature of their bo this body and mind that was a central teaching. Who are you really? He had the skeleton here. How do you feel the bones and the skeleton and the elements of earth, air, and fire, and water? You know, and opening the wisdom eye to see as we sit here and rest with the mind like the sky in this awareness of meditation. Thoughts come and go and fears and longings and love and hate arise and you rest in this true nature. He had people really work to experience the sense of emptiness, the spaciousness of mind, 
And then people would say, but, but if we're empty in this way, what about our responsibilities? Will we be good parents? What about our children? What about our work? You'll be better, he said. You're not a very good parent when you're always frightened what's going to happen to your child and you want them to go to Yale and you want this for them and you want that. That's not a good parent, he said. How about if you don't cling to them so much and you can just rest at ease and love them and respect them and not need them to be something? He said, you'll be, if you rest in this emptiness, you'll be a much better parent and a much better artist and a much better lover. How do you like that? <laughs> From a monk. Mm. Planting the seeds inwardly and outwardly of the Tao, of the eternal Dharma, for one's heart. I had a friend who was recently at a World Ecology Conference down at Esalen Institute. And this conference mostly had people like Amory Lovins and kind of people who were visionaries in energy and in, in rainforest, things and so forth. Um, but one of the um, less likely participants there was an older black woman who had been in prison herself and then come out and started the Prison Garden Project um, and showed a visit video of her work, which is spreading. You know there are more than a million people in prison in our country. There's almost a quarter of a million people behind bars, a quarter of a million people in the state of California. What are we doing? And the majority of them are people of color. And there's so much uh, racism and um, economic injustice. Um, and we don't look at it. We're building more prisons. It's insane. More money for prisons than for schools. It is crazy. So this woman started the Prison Garden Project in which she would go into certain prisons and bring the seeds and the materials for people in, inside to plant gardens. And not everybody took to it, but a lot of people did. And they became completely enthralled, into, if you've never had a garden, into growing their gardens. And it, as the video showed, it changed a lot of people's lives because it was the first time in many people's lives that someone's life depended on them really directly. So much so they cared for the gardens that a number of people who got out committed crimes to get back in, to get back to their garden. <laughs> so then this is true. So then she had to start part two, which was the ex-offenders um, garden so that there was gardens outside the prison. This is really a true story. And she did that um, and was given some land. I don't know whether it was in Watts, East Los Angeles, or in Oakland somewhere, but she was given some lots in some really um, bad parts of the city where the crime rate was very high and where the economy was profoundly depressed and uh, where there was a lot of um, uh, drug dealing and stuff like that. All right, you can have these these empty lots for your garden. And so she started a garden project there, and as, as a result of it, um, got some people who who had done their time and were doing a garden there. And one day she was out um, working in one part of the garden. There were a few other men there, and this uh, young man came running along with a gun, who'd obviously who was obviously high on something and had been in some kind of trouble, and he came and he threatened her life. 
Um, and the men who had been in prison, who were some distance back from her, she was wondering what they would do, and none of them moved. They didn't even want to make a move. They just stood there, and there she was with her life being threatened. And then one of the men looked at this young man and said, Hey, hey, I know who you are. He said, I know, because I know your aunt, your old Aunt Mary. Isn't that your aunt? And then one of the other men who was part of that community said, Yeah, and wasn't your grandmother's name Cecilia? You know, and I know you have two brothers, don't you? And what they did, they didn't move at all. They simply began to name his relations. And as they named aunts and grandmothers and brothers, um, the excitement and the fear and all the violent energy that was in him began to recede as he heard the names of his family and he began to realize that he was a part, that they were a part of this same great family. As we plant the seeds of the Dharma, we discover this same truth, the sacred connection that we all have together. And this was Ajahn Jamnian's teaching as well. He would say, you are my brothers and sisters in the Dharma. I love you all. We are all the Dharma family. So that in Thailand, you use the words, you know, uncle doctor or auntie mayor, you know, or, or father senator or, or whatever it is. Everybody has a family name. You know, the principal of the school is... Uh, is not the school principal, but he's uncle principal, or she's auntie principal. You know, and I have to go see auntie now today. Isn't that different? It's really amazing. So when Fred Wapapa came, who is our native elder here, and offered an eagle feather to honor Ajahn Jamnian when he met him and said that this is a feather from the great eagle because we believe that the eagle carries the prayers of humans up to the spirit world. That's why we honor the eagle. Um, and they had this nice connection. Then he offered a sweat lodge. And Ajahn Jamnin asked what that was, and he explained that it was to purify the body and cleanse the heart and be reborn and make prayers and blessings. And Ajahn Jamnin said, Oh, purify the body, make blessings, sign me up, you know? <laughs> so... Uh, as far as I know, this was the first time ever in the world that a group of Buddhist monks went into a Native American sweat lodge. And last Thursday, they came, and after the day was done, and a number of others of us did it. And they built a big fire over there with the sweat lodges and covered the lodge. And, and then Fred started to explain that the lodge itself was the womb of Mother Earth who gave birth to us. We were going to enter into her womb to be reborn again, reborn in the spirit. And around the lodge were the four color flags of uh, black and white and red and yellow, which signified the coming together of all races in harmony or in unity. Um, and that the, the work that we were doing was to, was to heal the madness of racism. And then he showed, the, the, there was this big fire with the stones in the middle, this big bonfire, and a stone circle around it, which was the circle of your life from infancy through middle age to your elder years. And that the fire itself was like the testicles, and there were these long sacred mounds of earth were like the phallus. And then when you took the red-hot stones from the fire and placed them into the center of the womb of the earth, it was like the semen from the male and the female uniting in this, 
It's a very tantric image from the native tradition. Um, and out of that will come a new birth. So we all took everything off. Ajahn Jamin took all those chachkas and things he wears off, and put them on the sacred thing. And we went in, and Fred invited him to sit in the seat of power, which was right at the opposite the door, where the energy from the stones and the fire and the so forth would be. And he kind of sat cross-legged, and he took off all that stuff, because partly he was afraid all the plastic would melt, you know, he had all this plastic covering all those Buddhas and thousands of things he was wearing. And then Fred began, we closed the lodge and it filled with steam, and Fred began with this song and prayer to thanking the, the water and the fire, the winds, thanking the gods of the winds and thanking the spirits of the trees and the earth and all the elements. And he finished, and then Ajahn Jamnian did this beautiful song and prayer where he matched, speaking of the, uh, you know, of the wind that gives breath to our body and the earth that gives us nurturance. And there was this Sanskrit Pali prayer, and then there was this Native American prayer. And then, um, you know, Fred did a prayer of gratitude to the Great Spirit and all the spirits. And then Ajahn Jamnian did this prayer for all Buddhas and Devas and angels in the 10,000 world systems. And they're kind of swapping prayers back and forth, you know. And it got hotter and hotter in the sweating. He's just sitting there smiling, saying, oh, what great purification. <laughs> Breathe in the steam, you know. And Fred took his elk hide drum with the bear claws on it. And Ajahn Jamnian looked and said, oh, bear claws, you know, because he lives in the forest. He knows this. Oh, look at that. And beats this. And he's saying his prayers. And they opened the lodge for a moment between the rounds, and he, Fred was doing this prayer. And Ajahn Jamnian says, when I see him beating this drum, I hear his grandfathers, and I hear his grandfather's grandfathers, and I look at him, and I see a thousand generations of his teachers and elders who have given him this song. And so as soon as Fred finished the song, and said the prayer that one does at the end of each prayer in the lodge, which is homatakuyas in all my relations, that I do this not for myself but for all beings, like the bodhisattva vows that, that Ajahn Jamnian gave, may all beings be awakened or purified together. Then Ajahn Jamnian started chanting the 80 ancestors from the Buddhist tradition, the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas and the great. And so there were the Native American ancestors and, the, and, the, and the, uh, all the great masters in these traditions. And, and um, they're sitting there breathing in the steam and purifying themselves and filling themselves with the energy of the ancestors. And he ended with this beautiful prayer and said, Thank you to Fred. This is just what I needed. I'm going to turn 60 this year and resign as the abbot and give away all my uh, ritual things and just live a simple monk in the forest and do the practices of emptiness and teach the highest dharma to people. And now I have the blessings of your ancestors too. I feel them in the cells of my body. I can take them back to Thailand even though you can't come. I'm bringing all your grandfathers back to the forests of Thailand and Fred is smiling like this, you know. <laughs> and then Ajahn Jamnian crawls out of the sweat and starts dancing and whooping, woo, you know, making sounds, saying, this is great, what good energy, you know. We're all smiling like this, you know. And you could feel it, it was like the Buddhas and the ancestors and the elders and the grandfathers were all there together. And then he went over and thanked Fred a lot and says, now I will always revere you as my teacher for the rest of my life. When I do the practices of purification, I will remember what you've taught me, you know. 
And then he dug around in his things. I thought he was going to give him one of all these sacred things and stuff. He went under there and he pulled out this roll of hundreds. <laughs> and he said, you're my teacher. We have to take care of your teachers. And he peeled off $500 and he said, here, take this. I know for your path. I want to help you. You know, and Fred was smiling even more at that. It was great. It's fantastic. Ah. Oh. This sense of the sacred community of the earth. When the dung beetle moves, know that something has moved it, and know that its movement affects the flight of the sparrow, and that the raven deflects the eagle from the sky, and that the eagle's stiff wing bends the will of the wind people, and know that all this affects you and me, and the flea on the prairie dog, and the leaf on the cottonwood. This has always been the point of our lesson on earth, the interdependency of all things, a reason for everything. Every cause has its effect, every action its reaction. In all things a pattern, and in this pattern the beauty of harmony. Thus one learned to live with evil by understanding it and reading even its cause. And thus one learned gradually and methodically, if one was lucky, to always look for the pattern, to always go in beauty, to find the way. This is actually from uh, Tony Hillerman, who's a Native American mystery writer, <laughs> writing. But it's that, this sense of sacred community, and felt such a privilege to be in that sweat together with them. The next day, Ajahn Chamnian and the staff and board and teachers, we all met together. I mean, he expressed a lot of appreciation for Spirit Rock Center. He said, you know, I feel that people who come to be with me this week who practice here, there's more sincerity than most of my monks and nuns in Thailand. He said, you really seem to want to know what it is to awaken, how to practice, and how to be free. And he was, it was, it was really honoring of us as a community. And then he said, even in your fundraising, don't worry about the success, he said. Um, he, he said, I can see clearly that you're being carried by the winds, by the stream of the Dharma. You're being pulled along by it. It's not your doing, he said. You know, in a short time you have this marvelous place, 400 acres of land, these buildings and so forth. He said, you didn't even have to work that hard for it, did you? Huh? <laughs> he said, because it's not yours, it really comes from the Spirit of this land and of what people's hearts bring to it. Just be committed to the good of every being that comes across those bridges, to the awakening of the great heart of the Buddha, of everyone who comes on this land, and everything else will follow from that. And if you have a lot of people coming and they're new, tell them the truth. Don't water it down, he said. You know, What we offer is not the things of this world. It's not to come here and you know just have a pleasant evening or something like that, but the riches of the heart. And they ask of you a great sacrifice to speak truth, to live with integrity, to not harm other beings, to know the emptiness of things. And he had those who wished when he was here, many of you were part of this, who wished to take vows with him, to commit their lives to rest in their true nature or their Buddha nature. That was one of the vows many people took. I will live from, from this knowing, this Buddha within me. I will honor that. And to bring all beings together 
with one's own enlightenment to, to develop the great heart of compassion and to see when another being, even if they're insulting you or causing you or others suffering, to see that they are just entangled in the cages of their own mind and to meet that sorrow with your compassion because that's what it is. They make suffering for themselves and others to understand that. And as he left, he kind of laughed and reminded us of the skeleton that he'd been using for teaching. He said, pay attention and see, you know, the skeleton that sits and walks and moves. You can feel the bones in your hand and your arms and your legs and the, the uh, skull here. You know, the eyes resting its sockets and so forth. See that this is just the food body, bones, minerals, flesh. And remember to ask the question deeply, who am I really? Who is it that you really are? Are you this body? Or are you this timeless awareness, this pure consciousness? Practice the great space of attention. The wisdom eye was his phrase to sit and walk in meditation and cultivate that which sees the thoughts and images, which feels the sensations and the movements of moods of the heart, but rests in this great emptiness that is your own true nature. And then he said, I'll come back. We asked if he'd come back. He said, sure, he'd come back anytime. We invited him. He was happy to come and be here, and he was happy to go. Michael said he'd wake up in the morning, you know, each morning enthusiastic, let's go back to Spirit Rock, what a great day to teach the Dharma, let's go to it, you know. <laughs> and he was, he was just happy, whatever he did. He said, if many come and see me and I get to teach them, then wonderful day for the Dharma. Be happy. And if nobody comes, oh, delicious, I get a quiet day to meditate, I'll be so happy, you know. And if you take me to see the Golden Gate Bridge and all the sites of San Francisco and take me around, I'll see lear- and learn all kinds of new things. That would be wonderful and make me very happy. But if I stay home because you don't take me anywhere, then I can walk in the forest and listen to the breeze and the leaves, and I'll be so happy. You know? And if people come and bring me food in the morning, put it in my bowl, oh, new taste, American food, give me strength of body, lots of energy to teach, fantastic. And if nobody brings me anything to eat, great. I'll fast. I could lose some weight. I could use that, a little bit of a diet. I'll be happy. As he left, I felt sad. It was like this great joyous heart, this great big sun of presence and happiness that throughout all the days he was here was so obvious, um, was going. You know, and then I asked him again about coming back. He said he would be happy to visit again and so forth. And I told him that next year, in 96, I'm planning to be on sabbatical for half the year in Asia. I might see him there. But that would be the time he could come. And I didn't know whether he would want to come with, not, with me not being here and using one of the other translators. And he said, never mind, I can get another translator. You're not indispensable, you know. <laughs> you know? And I felt sad. Oh, I'm not special. You know, he didn't see what a great job I did translating, right? And then he said, oh, Dr. Jack, he's very good, but eh, not indispensable, right? It was a great moment. Anyway, now he's gone. He was the elder for a while, and so I have to pretend to be the elder again. A premature elder, somebody said. Um, 
But like Ajahn Sumedho, who was here the week before, he carried the blessings of this particular lineage <clears throat> of compassion, of joy, of ease, of a great emptiness of being. And this, he shared this tremendous happiness and abundance. And in his honor, I read to end this, this poem from Rumi, Walking Out of the Treasury Building. Lord, the air smells good today, straight from the mysteries within the inner courts of the divine. A grace like new clothes thrown across the garden, free medicine for everybody, the trees in their prayer, the birds in praise. Whatever comes from this divine is caught up in being drunkenly. One man turns and sees his birth, pulled separate from the others. He fills with light, colors change. He drinks it in, everyone is wonderfully drunk, shining with his beauty. Face to face with a lion, I grow leonine. Walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous. Anyone still sober in this weather must be really afraid, afraid of what they'll say or do. Why not do anything? Enough talking. If we eat too much greenery, we're going to smell like vegetables. <laughs> Walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous. So one day, shortly after he came, I brought over for Ajahn Jamnian to see. This, this was a birthday present from Liana, from my wife, a few years ago. And he is a, a Peruvian god, um, pre-Columbian, uh, the god of abundance. And he was buried when the, when the Spaniards and the conquistadors um, destroyed a lot of the temples in Peru. Um, uh, some of their gods were taken and buried. And in one of the towns um, which hold up against the Spanish um, for a very long time, um, they unburied this god that had been buried, and somehow they managed to get enough food and enough rain and things to survive, and so they've kept this god alive in that culture, and this is one form. And I brought it, and his monks started to laugh and laugh, and they said, it looks just like him, you know, <laughs> just wearing all this stuff. Walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous. And what one felt, what I felt in his presence, and what this God represents and what Rumi speaks about is your own gold, the gold of your own potential joy and happiness and Buddha nature. No matter what the changing circumstances, if they feed you or if they don't, if it's hot, if it's cold, things are going to change if they praise you or they blame you, which they will continue to do. The abundance of your own inner wisdom and the capacity of, of every human being to rest in their Buddha nature. So it is a blessing to meet and see Ajahn Jamni and Ajahn Sumedho because what you do is you look in the mirror and you see that happiness in abundance that is who you really are as well. Let's sit for just a moment. <clears throat> Rest in your true emptiness. Let things come and go, rise and fall like the waves of the ocean. And rest in the great joy, the compassion of a Buddha that sees the things of the world and knows this freedom that's not entangled by them, 
We all know that place of wisdom, that place of kindness. Lord, the air smells good today, straight from the mysteries. Anyone still sober in this weather must be really afraid. And then ask yourself, what entanglements might you let go of and release to live with freedom and joy this day this week in your life. Why not do it? So, Two or three quick announcements and then a little chant to finish. Um, Next couple of weeks, I'll be at an international transpersonal conference and then in Lama Foundation, so it will be Sylvia Borstein, followed by Yvonne Rand, who's a wonderful Zen teacher from Green Gulch. Um, This week, all... How many of you are residents of San Geronimo Valley? Please, residents of San Geronimo Valley, there's an election for... um, The only thing on our ballot is a bond for the school uh, uh, to help the uh, school uh, system. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.